Where did the weeds come from? You've asked the same question, have you? Yeah, good. <laughs> it, 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 of course, it is the fundamental question that we ask ourselves individually and we've asked ourselves as a culture since we've had culture. Where does evil come from? The strange thing about this parable is it doesn't actually attempt an answer for that. It just assumes an enemy has done this. Well, who's the enemy? Well, there's an explanation for this parable a little later on that we haven't read. Um, And and it says it's the devil. But it's really not, not much help just to name it without having any meaning, any understanding of what that means. And in fact, nearly all biblical scholars suggest that the explanation was added much later than than the gospel. And, and if you read it, if you go home and read it for yourself, the explanation just sounds different than the rest of the, the text. So it's really not much help. And the, the Bible itself actually isn't that much help either because all the way through it postulates the arrival of evil in lots of different ways that it belongs to some kind of evil force that could be named as the devil or the Satan. Um, it, it could be based in the, just the nature of what it means to be human. It's just a part of being human. Or it could, in some parts of the Gospels, uh, in, in some parts of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, it could even come from God, God's self. And in fact, the slaves in this story do tend to kind of have that sort of blame of the master. Did you not sow good seed in your field? You know what it's like when people ask you a question that they already know the answer to and you already know the answer. We call it a bit passive-aggressive, don't we? But there must be someone to blame. I mean, just look at the 20th century, for example. Evil. All the, stitched all the way through it. And for so many populations, the most terrible time to be alive. They must make some sense or reason. We would like evil to be something that we can do something about, that we can deal with. We can blame parents for poor upbringing of children. We do that a lot. We can blame, blame poverty and lack of opportunity for a stirring of evil and for, for thievery and all kinds of things. We can blame, as some have done, the lack of religion, the fact that there is a small number of people in this church here now, and there have been times, not many, but there have been times when this church has been closer to full over its long life, and that because that's happened, there are less people doing what we're doing this morning all over the, the world that that's a reason for evil and something we can do something about. Or it's just a lack of moral courage or moral fibre. Or one of our key ones in uh, in our current culture is a lack of education. If we educate people better, then evil will be eradicated. Or maybe, if not eradicated, at least will be dealt with in some way because we want to be able to do something about it. Well, what does the parable invite us to do? First of all, it tells us that there is the weeds, there is evil in amongst the good. 
We've identified it and the slaves of the master are pretty good at that. They identify what's going on. These are weeds. Apparently the, the term used in Greek is a term that comes from the Aramaic and it is of a plant that very, looks very much like wheat when it's growing. Um, it has less, uh, it doesn't have any seed bearing um, pods in, in the, the bit at the top, the stem. You can see my farming knowledge has rapidly reached its conclusion. But um, it looks very much like wheat to begin with and then uh, you can tell later, if you know what you're looking for, that it's not. So it's been identified. We can see where the evil in the world is. And if the parable doesn't treat the origin of evil, what does it suggest we do about it? Nothing. Let them both grow together. When it says let, that word is used. It's funny how it's translated here because it's normally translated um, out of the Greek into English as forgive. But here we've got let. So it's really saying just don't worry about it. Forgive it and let it keep growing. Which is terribly shocking. And one of the reasons why we have an explanation, most scholars think, inserted later into the... Because if this is what Jesus says, and this is all Jesus says... We're kind of left. Do nothing and forgive it. It's a counterintuitive response to evil. We don't want to live there. We, we want this. My dad used to have this poster on his wall or a poster that said these words. These are the people we like to be. We like to get things done. And I finally, I, I often quoted this to myself and to others, um, and I finally started looking for where it comes from. It actually comes from the show Yes, Prime Minister, which is one of the great cultural um, treasures of, of, of British and Australian culture. If you've never watched it, I, I assume you can get it on one of the sort of download uh, uh, apps, but, um, but it's, it's written into one of the scripts. We must do something. Here's something, we must do this thing. That kind of encapsulates what we want to be able to do about evil. And, and yet, something must be done. But, we, but the, the gospel, the, the parable says, leave it. And maybe it's because something that must be done is the desire not to fix it, but to make ourselves feel better by doing something. You know that desire we have when we're in, in a fix? And this is something I, I find a lot with um, those of you who've, who are or have been married. Um, it, you may have noticed this story. Uh, this, of course, it's never happened to me, but I've read about it and I've talked about it with other people, that when often one member of the partnership, often the woman, wants to tell a story about what's going on in their experience, the complexity of some problem at home or at work or wherever sometimes the male figure in the partnership will want to fix it well oh, what you've got to do is um, and the other partner will, will be saying in some word or another I don't want you to fix it I'm smart enough to know it's not easy, that easy to fix I don't want you to fix it I just want you to listen and so many times Conflict comes in friendships, in, in love relationships, any relationships where one person wants to do something. And particularly, you can make, it makes sense because you love that person and you don't want them to be struggling, so you want to do something to fix it. 
But so often that doing something to fix it is so you don't feel completely helpless and useless. So often we want to do something to make ourselves feel less impotent in the face of huge things. We've got to do something. This is something. We've got to do this. Jesus says in the parable, no. And the reason for no is because in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Things are a lot more complicated than you think you are. Remember Hardin's law. It's not possible to do merely one thing. It's not possible to do merely one thing. Every time he was a geneticist, I think a geneticist or a biologist, every time you do one thing, you're doing lots of things at once. Some of them you want to have happen, many of them you don't. Nobody wanted to destroy the planet by producing plastic out of oil. We didn't mean to. You never do just one thing. And that's why I have that photograph of um, Robert E. Lee uh, up there. And this one too at the beginning. This woman is far less known. Her name is Jen Reed. And at the Black Lives Matter protest in Bristol uh, on June the 7th, uh, a photograph was taken of her um, putting her hand in the air like that. And there's the rest of the, 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 the image. And... Mark Quinn, a a well-known British sculptor, invited her to make a a sculpture of of her. It's made of black resin and uh, they then put it on a plinth without permission in Bristol to replace the statue of this man, which you may have heard uh, came down um, at the same time. It was pulled down um, by uh, protesters, Black Lives Matters protesters. His name is Edward Cotton. Uh, Colton, and he was the um, uh, one of the great benefactors of Bristol. And there's all sorts of buildings all over Bristol named after him. Um, uh, he was a 17th, end of the 17th century, a slaver, uh, and um, a member of the Royal African Company. He ran it for a while, and that had exclusive rights in, in England for the west coast of Africa uh, sl- uh, slaves. They had the monopoly of slaving on that part of the coast. Uh, it was set up by uh, Charles II and, uh, and his brother, um, who became James II. Uh, it had all kinds of noted members of it who were themselves slavers. John Locke, the philosopher who uh, 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 finally um, relinquished his work on slavery and changed his mind. Um, Samuel Pepys and lots of other famous people. So Cotton, so Cotton represents that group. But on June, uh, in June, his statue was yanked down and tossed into the, uh, uh, the Bristol Harbour. And look, even if you thought he was a wonderful man, and nobody does, um, you've got to laugh when somebody does this, don't you? It's something sort of wonderful happening. But it does raise a whole bunch of questions as to what do we do with these statues. And the statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond in Virginia is right in the middle of this debate. Um, Lee uh, had the opportunity when um, when the, the, the Civil War was looking like it was coming. Lincoln, the, the president, asked Lee if he would lead the Union forces against the Confederacy. And Lee said no, he needed to go home to Virginia and be a part of the Virginian uh, experience. And uh, Virginia had been one of the early states to secede from the Union. And he said, no, I'm going to go home to Virginia. And of course, he ended up being, he was the most senior general uh, and ran the war for the Confederacy. 
against, uh, 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 eventually against Ulysses S. Grant, uh, both of whom were in West Point together. They, in fact, all the generals in the Civil War knew each other, some of them really, really well. Uh, Grant had one battle, we don't need to go on this, but anyway, had one battle against a general who had loaned him money when Grant was, um, uh, was in real trouble. And they'd become friends and they had to fight a battle against each other. That's what civil wars do. But what do we do, given the story we've got with these statues? Could, should we leave the statue of Edward Colton um, bolted to the plinth in Bristol? It's not there at the moment. It's been taken down. Um, they've decided they're going to move it into a museum and pr- present it um, in a story with the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, more story about the terrible um, life that he led in his treatment of uh, African people in slavery uh, and, and do something a little bit different. Uh, you know, how do we have this conversation? Um, I, 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 by the way, don't know the answer. I'm just saying here's the parable and we better listen to that against this actual story that we're telling at the moment. We're telling this story about... James Cook. What do we do with the statues of James Cook and his attitude uh, to native peoples um, in the Pacific uh, and also in Australia? And of course, this I don't know if you saw this photograph, but um, this is the wonderful statue of Winston Churchill out the front of uh, the Palace of Westminster. And uh, that is a true statement about him. Um, and it wasn't just that that um, Churchill was a, a man of his time, uh, although he was. There were many people in public life speaking uh, in favour of treating uh, the Welsh, the Indians, the Irish, and the Africans, and pretty much anyone else you could name that Churchill had to deal with um, as real human beings rather than as far, much, far, far lesser human beings than the British. All these things have been raised for us just in these last few months. The story about Edward Colton, the slaver, uh, has been going on for a long time. People have been protesting that statue standing in a prominent place in Bristol for many years, and it's only now that this has happened. But what does it invite us to do? Well, first of all, the parable says we ought to recognise the good and bad in all of us, in ourselves. And and the desire to tear down a statue, which many of us may have, not only represents the desire to be done with that story of history or to change it, but also a desire to do something and to make a mark and to to feel um, like we're we're potent. And that's good and bad and ought to be recognised as that. That often a good protest can turn into a terrible event. What, what becomes a protest in some parts of America recently have turned into rioting where people have destroyed the stores that they ought to be shopping in and they are shopping in. Like it can go bad quickly. That we ought to recognise that we can't unstitch the good and the bad in, be, in being human or, or in human culture. That we need to be clear-eyed and humble and truthful about ourselves. If you meet people who tell you or need for some reason need to tell you that they're not racist, you perhaps ought to go and have a conversation with someone else who's a bit more thoughtful and a bit more understanding and a bit more aware of their own experience because it isn't true 
We all deal with those structures. We've been brought up in a certain way. We've come from a certain culture. It's not easy for us to deal with people who are different to us. And we ought to be aware of that within ourselves. And we ought to be honest with ourselves about it. We need to approach our problems and our issues and the issues of evil with great humility and gentleness. Does that mean we don't do anything? No, I think it was a good idea to take down the statue of Redwood Colton. should have been done many years ago and a redesigning of a, an exhibition with his statue, why it's there and not on the plinth anymore, um, who he did, what, what, what he was uh, like as an individual, what he did as a human being, the good things he did, even though it was slave money, the good things he did in the town of Bristol, you know, all of these things are together, along with the Black Lives protests, should be there. Um, we should be in we, we, that long-held story that Captain Cook discovered Australia. We've got to change it. We know that. And we've got to do that with gentleness and with humility and with great thanks for the, for the work that he did and with great humility for the work of Indigenous people who were here long, long, long before he stumbled across the place. Anyway. You, you know all these things. We just This story is inviting us to do that. This is how it ends. The parable says that the weeds will be burnt away. What is evil and wrong and, and um, perverted within us as a culture and as, within us as individuals will be burnt away and what will be left will be the true goodness. And of course the wheat isn't harmed in the story at all. It's still wheat. It's still growing beautifully. The goodness will, will be, will be um, clearer because of the evil we swept away. And it, and it will be treasured. The goodness of who you and I are will be treasured. That's the story about being put into bounds. Anyway, it's going to, we could keep, I'm going on way too long on this, but um, there's so many different ways that we could go, isn't there? But thank you for your indulgence. <laughs>